you have your Bibles, would you pick those up with me and turn with me to the Song of Songs? If you have your Bibles, would you please open them? We'll be in chapter 7, verse 10. Reading through chapter 8, verse 4. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let's go out to the country. Let's spend the night in the villages. Let's rise early and go to the vineyards. Let's see whether the vine has grown and its buds have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all delicious fruits, new as well as old, which I have saved for you, my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Swear to me, you daughters of Jerusalem, do not disturb or awaken my love until she pleases. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall endure forever. Heavenly Father, there are truths that are simply just too great for our mind to conceive. The greatest of these is the depth of your love to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you be pleased that our eyes would be opened but a little wider, that the light of that love would shine a little deeper into our hearts, into our souls, such, Lord, that we are affected by that love and return it with our own. Lord, that the love of Christ would compel us into every good thing, not that we should earn or merit a single favor from your hand, but rather that you would receive the glory and the honor that is due your name. Father, would you use the message this morning, the words here that you have given to us through the inspiration of your Spirit to this end and through this weak messenger. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Quoting from Charles Spurgeon. True love to Jesus grows stronger and stronger in proportion as it abides in Him. We are cold in our love because we live at a distance from Him. The angel who dwells in the Son has never to complain of an ice-bound heart, and he who lives in Christ and abides in Him will blaze and glow with a warmth of love comparable to that of Christ Himself 
I do not think that the numbers of a church will have so much to do with the work it accomplishes. That depends more upon the degree of love than upon the length of the church role. A small church inflamed with ardent affection for the divine Lord will do more for Him than a great host eaten up by worldliness. Love burns its way by its own vehement flames. Coals of juniper are soon felt. The Enochs are the men. They walk with God, and hence they have power over their times. The Johns are the men. They lean on Jesus' bosom, and when they come forth to tell of what they have seen and heard, they speak with authority as sent by the Most High. The Lord give to us as members of this church to abide in habitual fellowship with Jesus, not to have occasional spasms of delight in God, but one unbroken rest in Him. We would not now and then look through the windows of agates and behold the King in His beauty, but we would continue looking unto Jesus. We would have His praise continually in our mouths and His love burning like the quenchless altar fire of the temple forever within our hearts. This is the one thing needful to promote and sustain a revival in a church. If we have abounding love to Jesus, we can prosper under disadvantages. But if we have it not, we have lost the great secret of success. Love to Jesus teaches our hands to war and our fingers to fight. It sets us side by side with the conquering Emmanuel and makes us share in His victories. It yokes us with the strong Son of God and so makes our infirmities to be but opportunities for the display of His power. This love leads the church to hold all things in joint possession with Christ. So again, again the, the theme for the book at hand is this. There is a mutual love between Christ and His bride that is stronger than death, a divine flame that will never be quenched. By way of review, we will be concluding today the fourth and the longest section of this book. And the theme for this section, I propose, says this. The church is at times a slumbering bride whose Delayed response affects a time of spiritual languish, but will be brought again to a restoration in Christ's love. So, the scene opened for us in chapter 5, verse 2, with the slumbering bride who was just a little too lethargic to get up and answer the door at the arrival of the visiting groom. And by the time she does rouse herself, the groom has departed, and so then she wanders through the streets searching for him, but without any success. And her loss is then further aggravated by the watchmen who find her, they beat her, they strip her of her veil, by which they seek to affirm their wrong conclusions about her intentions. And then the scene shifted to the bride calling upon the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find her beloved, and they respond with this inquiry, about why it is that she should so desperately need Him. And this then moves her to a response of both what He is to her 
and where he is to be found. And with this answer that she gives to the daughters of Jerusalem, we see that this distress begins to dissolve and her assurance of his love begins to emerge. Next, we have the groom appearing and he begins to speak to her, communicating to his bride that she is still beautiful in his eyes and that she excels over all other rivals. And then it was that the bride was taken up, as it were, in a speeding chariot and raptured again in his love. The groom then continues to extol the beauty of his bride and describes how he is gratified by her love, which is where we left off in the last message. And then in our text this morning, we see now the bride responding to the kind expressions of the groom. And the emphasis is placed here particularly particularly on her desire for intimate communication or communion as a culmination of joy in this restoration of love. There's three main points that we'll focus on this morning. A secured relationship, compelling desire, and an intimate union. And then we'll make some application at the end. So first of all, the bride asserts a secured relationship. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So this is really a reiteration of what has been communicated in similar fashion twice already in the song by the bride. But let me make some observations again about this particular statement. First of all, the bride is certain about her bond to the groom. She is devoted wholly to him. She has entirely yielded herself to him and to him alone. It's not a partial commitment, but a whole commitment. She's all in. I am my beloved's. But the other side of the coin is this. She is owned wholly by him. Having come through a troubling separation, she's now fully assured that the groom claims her as her own. I am my beloved's. The bride is certain about her bond to the groom. Secondly, the bride is confident in the strong affection of the groom. She says, his desire is for me. This relationship is marked by something greater than just this mere mutual ownership. I mean, you could envision a slave saying something similar. Well, I I own my master. My master owns me. We belong to each other. We have this sort of dutiful commitment, or I do, towards him. But this relationship is more than that. She knows that the groom's heart is bent toward her in love. He longs to be with her. He longs to have her near to himself. He longs to have and to hold. So the bride is certain about her bond to the groom. She's confident in the strong affection of the groom. And thirdly, she triumphs in these truths. This is implied, I believe, by the manner by which she posts her claim. This isn't some sort of dry morsel of data. This is a fact that she boasts in because it means the world to her. And it means the world to her because of the nature of the groom. So let's take those observations here and look through the lens of Christ. First of all, the church is certain. 
in her bond with Christ. And by church here, let me clarify, I mean those men and women who are truly regenerate and have been brought into the faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. These are devoted wholly to Him. Not by halves, but they are wholly yielded. They're all in. And they are owned wholly by Him. We are His. Let me repeat that, because I want this to sink in. We are His. This is a simple truth. A child could understand that. But sometimes it is the simplest things that once believed shall make all the difference in the world. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. And my own know me. Secondly, the church has assurance in the affection of Christ. The church can rightly say, His desire is for me. Because because we've been told so by the groom himself. I want you to think about that in these words. Words that are familiar. Words that you've heard before. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We have assurance of the affection of Christ. John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. These are not the words of a disinterested disaffectionate, remote Savior, but one who dearly loves and desires to have near to Himself all those that belong to Him. Thirdly, the church is right then to triumph in these truths. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul does at his conclusion to the chapter 8 of Romans. He says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church has every right to triumph in these truths. Thank you, Ethan. Second point, the bride expresses her compelling desire. The bride expresses her compelling desire. So, in verses 11 through 13, we're going to see the bride's enthusiastic expressions compelled by this mutual love that she shares with the groom. She wants to go with him. She wants to grow with him. She wants to gratify Him. So first of all, love compels her to go with Him. Verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country, let us spend the night in the villages. 
So here we see the bride's longing to depart on this excursion in the company of the groom. Now, I think if we stop and think about this for for a moment, there's something inherently romantic, we might say, about taking a getaway journey with one that you love. For those of us that are married, we understand this language. In fact, even after many years of marriage, this holds true to my own. So why is this? Let's stop and just think about that for a moment. Why is it such a wonderful thing to take the person that you're so in love with and to go out on an excursion with them? Well, first of all, to go with one another on a journey removes you from the present distractions, right? It's withdrawing from the common and the mundane features of life that tend to crowd your attention. Secondly, to go with one another on a journey puts you on a path of mutual interest. You share a common goal, a common destination, a common pursuit. Your minds are together, your steps are locked, your ambitions have been fused. To go with one another on a journey allows you to share experiences. Whether the path is easy or whether the path is difficult, the journey enhances your mutual bonds. When there's something by which to be thrilled, you're thrilled together. When there is adversity, you bear it together. So Nancy and I, since we first got married, have always sought to go on this sort of excursion together every year in celebration of our anniversary. In more recent years, we've sort of settled into this um, habit of going on cycling excursions where we locate a, a trail that might be good for cycling on and finding some place to stay nearby and spend the better part of a day than biking together. And honestly, I, I treasure those memories, the memories that we've made together doing that. I can recall staying at the Iron Horse Inn in Missouri and biking on the Katy Trail in central Missouri. Now, when you book a place that's called the Iron Horse Inn, you might want to ask yourself why they call it the Iron Horse Inn. So that's a term used for trains, and in the middle of the night we thought a train was going to come through our room. <laughs> Turns out it was built right along the tracks of a busy train track. We took an excursion to Shenandoah, Iowa to, to bike on the Wabash Trace Trail. Derek Martini suggested that to us. I can remember stopping with Nancy on the trail out in the middle of Iowa in the shade of the trees that lined it. And the only thing that we could hear were the peepers that spring and maybe a, a, the rumble of a tractor somewhere out distant working the fields. Birds chirping in the trees. We were miles away from anything. It was a wonderful time. A wonderful excursion. There is something inherently delightful and uniting when going on a journey with your beloved. So, love compels her to go with him. Secondly, love compels her to grow for him. Verse 12, Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There, I will give you my love. So it appears as though the focal point of the journey here together is to visit the vineyard garden 
and to observe the vines and the trees with the hopes of finding them in bloom and seeing fruit that's coming uh, into its ripeness. So I think we have to sort of take a moment here and bear in mind that the garden vineyard theme, which has emerged multiple times throughout the song, has been used in, in the song to represent the bride herself, whose benefits are delight to the groom. So here we see the bride in this sort of hopeful expectation to be this fruitful garden with the early bird uh, buds, rather, of the vineyard being brought into their full maturity. I think there's a couple of other points along with this. First of all, she desires to rise early in the morning to tend the garden. There's a certain passion woven into this. She's compelled beyond the comfort of sleep in an interest that's greater, that's better than uh, sleeping in in the morning. She estimates that the value of what's gained is over and above the associated costs. And secondly, it's in this context of a fruitful garden that the bride intends to manifest her love to the groom, saying, there I will give you my love. And this leads us then to the third observation. Love love compels her to gratify him. Verse 13, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. And so this shared venture culminates with a joyful reward laid up by the bride for the purpose of the groom's good pleasure. Now mandrakes here might be a reference to a fruit that was considered an aphrodisiac, that which enhances the desire for expressions of mutual love. And so the bride, through her preparations, has ensured that the sweet aroma of love is in the air, you might say. Furthermore, she's lovingly then stored up a bountiful harvest for the groom's good pleasure, both early and late fruits. And notice that she's taken these and she's hung them above the doors, the choice fruits. And I don't think we want to miss the significance that's in this display of the fruits. First of all, she calls them their doors, their their mutual doors, their shared life experiences. And they're plural, more than one. It It suggests here that this fruit is really a celebration, therefore, of every aspect of their relationship together. And furthermore, there is symbolism found throughout Scripture in relationship to the doorposts. Maybe your mind has already gone to some of those things. As we think about things being displayed on or associated with the doorposts of someone's house. So first of all, the doorpost serves as a symbol of identification. This is where the Passover blood was to be applied, as a symbol of the household of faith identifying with God's provision of salvation. Or... Consider that this is where the slave was to give their earlobe to be pierced through with an awl on the doorpost of the master with whom they loved and were giving themselves to for life. The doorpost is a symbol of identification. Secondly, it's a, it's a symbol of love. The Israelites were told to bind the word of God to the doorposts of their houses and as a symbol of embracing his commands and their commitment to love him with all of their heart and soul and might. 
I believe George Burroughs captures the idea eloquently in his summary of this verse, saying, Love ever hoards up for the object of affection the very best of everything that exertion can enable it to procure without waiting to be asked. It seeks to anticipate every want and takes delight in bestowing unexpected gratification. So let's take these observations then and look at them through the lens of Christ. First of all, love compels the church to go with Christ. To go with Christ. To walk together with Him. To commune with Him. This is the great desire of the church when it is spiritually awake and undistracted by other pursuits. And we can see this being true of the corporate body, but also true of the individual believer. Here, and and this going with Christ, is true joy. The sun will pierce the darkest clouds and the birds will sing their sweetest songs. His company makes our hearts burn with fire as with the disciples that traveled along with the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus. Here is real peace. When we walk near to Christ and keep our eyes fast upon Him, the waves of the sea shall be quiet and tranquility will fill every step. Here is real protection. When we walk near to Christ, we have no cause for alarm, for we know that no harm can befall us when we are in His presence. And here is real success. Whatever endeavor He leads us to, we shall be confident of a good outcome with this one who said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Secondly, love compels the church to grow for Christ. A genuine and fervent love for Christ will manifest itself by looking for growth and grace toward maturity and a fruitful harvest. Now we can think again of this in a corporate sense. The spiritually awakened church has a great desire to attend with Christ the buds of grace that shall be brought to fruitfulness in the garden of their love. And this could be applied to tending to the discipleship of those that are new in the faith, to see them grow in grace. I think of the conversation that Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection, saying to him, in essence, if you love me, then you will feed my lambs. But we also can see this being true for the individual believer as well, in terms of attending with Christ to our own spiritual growth and maturity to see that every good work is brought into maturity. As Matthew Henry puts it, our own souls are our vineyards. They should be planted with useful trees. We should often search whether we are fruitful in righteousness. Christ's presence will make the vine flourish and the tender grapes appear as the returning sun revives the garden. If we can appeal to Him, Thou knowest all things, Thou knowest that I love Thee. If His Spirit witness with our spirit that our souls prosper, it is enough. And we must beg of Him to search and try us, to discover us to ourselves. And again from George Burroughs, the degree of our activity will be proportioned 
to the vigor of our love. Activity without love is a spurious thing. Equally so is love without activity. While therefore love to Jesus makes us crave retirement with Him, it animates us to untiring diligence in works of activity and self-denial. Love compels the church to grow for Christ. Thirdly, love compels the church to gratify Christ. The spiritually awakened church longs to see the groom satisfied with the fruitful harvest of their mutual endeavor. It is love that drives our desire to consecrate every manner of good gifts and every manner of service unto Christ. And this is done both through the laying up of old fruit and new fruit and having this fruit bountifully displayed with its sweet fragrance wafting in through the house, readily visible, accessible for the joy and satisfaction of Christ. It's all for Him, for His joy, for His delight, as the product of His own love that's been invested in us. Displayed in our lives, above the doorposts, of our houses for a joyful identification with Him, displayed for a demonstration of our love to Him. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's that's being compelled. Do you see that? Compelled by the love of Christ to serve Him, to gratify Him. The love of Christ controls us. Love is what compels the church to go, to grow, to gratify Christ. Third point, the bride yearns for an intimate union. So beginning with some general observations. First of all, she desires the intimate bond of brotherly love. Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that she were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. So first, among observations, I believe this argues for the understanding that the bride and groom are not yet, or rather are yet in a state of betrothal, not yet married. And the bride wishes that the groom was, therefore, as a brother to her, bound not only by their betrothal, but by family blood. A relationship, therefore, of the highest affinity, commitment, and permanence. And this would provide two particular benefits to her. First of all, her affection, her expressions of affection rather, would would not draw the disapproval of those watching on so that she might be able to enjoy unhindered a constant intimacy with him and free interchange of expressions of love with him. Secondly, as a brother, she could freely bring him into her own home. Here's the place where her own heart has been instructed. And perhaps an inference here that he might instruct her there as well. And here with him, 
present in the home, she might satisfy him then with the best of her refreshments, sparing nothing good that she could offer, and this without any suspicions of indecency. Second observation, she longs to rest in his gentle arms. Verse 3, let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. We see here her desire for his intimate nearness and support. Nearness. She wants to be close to him, as close as she possibly can be. We recognize that an embrace is universally seen as an expression of relational affection, of tenderness, of solidarity. It's a moment where one might share with the one that they love each other's affection with undivided attention. Secondly, support. To have his left hand under her head and his right hand holding her demonstrates gentleness and strength. And this implies her need for his support and for his care. She desires this because she knows she needs it. Thirdly, she loathes all that would disturb this intimacy. She says, I want to swear to you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now, this is the third time this phrase has appeared in the song. Each time is landed at the close of one section and it marks a point of settled relational intimacy and opens for us a new scene. So we'll bring this verse as the closure to the fourth section. Now while there are varying opinions of both who's communicating this and what is meant, I favor the view that this is the bride actually speaking again to the daughters of Jerusalem, her peers, those who are looking on with intrigue. And the bride wants those around to let her continue to be lost in her affections, smitten with the groom, undisturbed in this resting love. And so she posts a stern warning against any intrusion that would disquiet this moment. So again, let's look at these through the lens of Christ. First of all, the church has the intimate bond of brotherly love with Christ. The church has the intimate bond of brotherly love with Christ. So the desire expressed by the bride is really centered upon greater relational intimacy with her betrothed groom and with free expressions of love and the benefits of this blood bond to him. And, you know, interestingly, yeah, we share this truth, this double bond with Christ. But not only are we considered to be the bride of Christ, the author of Hebrews points to his incarnation, perhaps actually what was being longed for in the Old Testament as they were foreseeing, looking forward to, longing for God's intimate presence, that he should come take on flesh and blood and be the means by which God, through his atoning work, has made us his brethren. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But we do see him who has made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and through whom all things, are all things rather, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You could say that he has entered into the house of her mother. And this really points to the benefits derived from a relationship of the highest affinity, commitment, permanence. As we read in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Jesus Christ is that friend and brother born for our adversity. Secondly, the church longs to rest in His gentle arms. A flaming love for Christ will manifest itself and a desire to be brought as near to Him as possible. A flaming love for Christ will seek to rest itself in His gentle, strong arms. And then by faith to say, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Oh, to be held by Him like the good shepherd carrying His lamb. Thirdly, the church loathes all that would disturb an intimacy with Christ. Such intrusions might come through any number of temptations by which we stumble or quench the Spirit. They might come through the distractions that draw our eyes away and cause a breach in our communion with Him. The obnoxious vices of a world that has no regard to the love between Christ and His bride. They might even come through the actions of the immature or nominal believers. Peter Masters notes, the idea is this, there are times for service, for witness, for daily work and for study, but times of devotion and communion must always keep their honored place and be free from unnecessary interruptions. Do not omit them and do not spoil them by bad moods. Curb and correct anything that would cause the skipping or slipping of devotion. So I want now to just make a couple of short applications from our passage here. And I'm going to do this by way of questions. The first question in response to the passage is this. Are you compelled by love to a life of intimate union with Christ? Are you compelled by love to a life of intimate union with Christ? Is your love for Him such that you desire to steal away into His presence? Are you ready to set aside other life tasks to simply sit at His feet? And then let me ask one more question. Does the schedule you kept this last week prove or disprove that? Oh, we can talk about it. That's one thing. But has love manifested itself in this way? That you have sought to be with Christ? That is a yes or no question. And I can't fix for you what is broken. 
If the answer to that question is no, may the Spirit of God move upon your heart. That's the best I can do for you. Secondly, are you compelled by love to a life of fruitful service to Christ or for Christ? You see, love and action are inseparable. Where there is true love for Christ, you will see fruitful service as well. Fruitful in terms of growth and grace and the harvest of righteousness that comes with it. Fruitful in terms of labor in the field of His kingdom to further His cause. For this reason, did the Apostle Paul write to the Philippian church, saying, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says, if I live, and and let me back up a moment and say, we know from the testimony of the Apostle Paul and everything that he's written, this is compelled by love. He's not earning anything. He's not seeking to merit anything. He is compelled wholly of love. And for him, that means if he is going to live another day on this earth, It will be unto Christ and for fruitfulness in His kingdom. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Do we have a love for Him that lives that out? Do you have a life that others around you might say, there is a man who seeks first the kingdom of God. Is that the testimony of your life? Is that what you live for? Is that what you die for? Or, there is a man who really knows how to promote a business. There is a man who has a handle on politics. There is a man who knows everything about sports. There is a man who has wonderful toys. What is it? If the love of Christ is in our hearts, then we shall be as those who others around will look in and say, there is a man who lives for the kingdom of God. And let me point out to you, The kingdom of God on this earth is worked out through the church. Through the church. If we have a love for Christ, then we will do all that we can to see His church prosper, to see it grow, to see it multiply, to see it bear fruit for His glory. I'm going to close here with one final quote from Spurgeon commenting on the fruits stored up by the bride for the gratification of the groom. He says, All these choice things ought to be laid up. Every good thing in a church is meant to be stored up, not to be despised and forgotten. And the point of all is that all in the church ought to be laid up for our beloved. 
And now is the time when I earnestly ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the rose and the hinds of the field, yea, by each sacred token of the love you bear your master, that each one of you should bring forth his pleasant fruits. Whether they be new or whether they be old, we do not bring them forth to buy his love. We know better. For though we should give all the substance of our house for love, it would be utterly condemned. We do not bring forth these fruits to secure his love for the future. We know it is an everlasting love that can never be taken away from us. We do not bring them forth because we want to commend ourselves. Ah, no, any beauty we have does not lie in the fruits of our storehouse, but in what He has put upon us and in what His love sees in us. Neither do we bring forth these pleasant fruits to feed on them ourselves. Old experiences are moldy things. Old manna breeds worms and stinks, and as for any fruits which we have brought forth, we take no satisfaction in them ourselves. All we have belongs to Him, and to Him alone, and at His feet we lay the whole. Put what you may give into the pierced hand. Make that your treasury. Jesus is your master. No one else has bought you. No one else has died for you. No one else will receive you until His fond embrace at the last. No one else is preparing heaven for you. No one else can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Serve ye him then with both your hands, with all your heart, with every drop of blood in your veins and every breath in your lungs. Give him yourself, your whole self, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. And when you have done that, if he spare you for another half century, you will find that you have spent the best life for yourself though that must not enter into your thoughts. With that, let's close in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess. Lord, there are times when our our love for you seems hardly visible. And Lord, you have given us every reason to love you. We pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would stir up, you would fan into flame our affections for Christ. That we might live lives, lives that are marked by joyful intimacy and communion with you in Him. Lives that are marked by a desire to be as fruitful as we possibly can be through your empowerment in Him. And lives that are marked by a joyful harvest of all the fruit. All the fruit that truly belongs to Him. For it was affected by His grace. Your grace to us in Him. That we should seek lives that gratify Him. Lord, do a work in our hearts, we pray. Make us people, individuals, with this kind of burning Love, Make us a church, Lord, with this kind of burning love for Christ. And do these all for your own glory, we pray in His name. Amen. So with that, I'll open it up. If there are any corrections or questions or other words to edify from the men this morning. The question I had was, what does it mean when it says a brother is born for adversity? Well, I would take that to mean it's a gift of God 
that we don't walk through this life alone. And we can see that first manifested in familial relationships, you know, that, that we have been given family, we've been given brothers that can stand with us through difficult times. But we can see this then certainly applied in the spiritual realm, uh, first of all, as fellow believers, that in this room I have many, many brothers. That is a good thing. I've faced adversity. It's good to know I have brothers standing with me. But ultimately, I think the truth that I wanted to draw out of the text, that Jesus, who took on flesh, He became for us and declared us as His brethren, that we have a friend that's, that was born, made incarnate, took on flesh for our adversity. Gary. So from your study of the Word, would you conclude that the love of God only and exclusively comes through Christ alone? I would, I would have to be thoughtful about how I worded my answer in that. He becomes the manifestation of God's love to us that is most clear, most full. It is... God without Christ is very much the same love, but through Christ we're given a window into that love. Maybe the best way to, to explain that. So it's not as though Christ is love and God is not, but I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it, it seems like in this day and age, and probably in years past, and probably in years future, that there are many who focus on the love of God. So everything else doesn't matter because all they're focusing on is the love of God. And yet, to the exclusion of Christ. Right, and you're touching on something very important. You cannot, I think this maybe then answers your question, you cannot know the love of God if you do not receive His Savior, if you do not receive Christ. If you, if you have no... If you reject Christ, then you know nothing of the love of God. Yet we know that many who would claim to be truly regenerate only look at the love of God. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? That's true. In a general sense, and they don't even understand that, nor do they understand the God of love and the multi multifaceted dimensions of, of who He is. Yeah. Dan, what do you see in the church, this church, that led you to such strong, introspective questions to pose to us this morning? Thank you, yeah. I see opportunities ahead for this church. And if we come Sunday by Sunday, simply to go to a nice service, to be under the hearing of the word and then go about our business, then as a church, we shall never do anything wonderful for Christ. It won't happen. It takes every member pursuing Christ. It takes every member fanning into flame their love for Christ. And I guarantee you, this is why we could talk about putting away worldliness or 
you know, doing this or doing that, but I am absolutely convinced to have your eyes fixed upon Christ and to know Him well, all of those things, that there can be nothing to compete with Him when you have a clear view towards Him. It'll all die away and then a desire to please Him and to gratify and to see His kingdom advance will consume you. And therefore, the best thing I can do, this is why at each of my children's graduations, the best counsel I can give to them is keep looking unto Jesus. Because that's, that's at the very heart and center of everything. Apart from that, everything is just worthless. I mean, we're not ever going to achieve anything that brings glory to God apart from a love for Christ. And there are opportunities for this church. And it will pain me greatly to not see this church do fruitful things for Him out of apathy, coldness of heart, a lack of love for Christ. I need every person in this church to seek after Christ with all of their hearts. And if we do that, I believe the words that I quoted here, you can have a small congregation, but you can do amazing things, wonderful things for Christ. But it requires not the pastor, or the elders, the, the, the leadership. It requires all of the members to have a burning hot love for Christ. And then there's nothing that you can do. No one will stop God from using that congregation for His name, for His glory. However it may come. That may not be the way that we would hope. It may be through persecution, enduring persecution in a manner that, that honors Him. I don't know. But I know this, that apart from that, we won't do anything great for him. We won't have any corporate fruit to show. So, Is the church plant a specific opportunity that you're... I see to? that as among them. Yes, I do. If you look at that and you think about that opportunity, do you recognize the ministry that God has for this church and what comes of it when things like that happen? I mean, yeah. It is no small thing that I have baptized all four of my children in this church. Right. And, and did not uh, did not let that come lightly, right? They heard the gospel. Yeah. And so I I do have I guess I have it seems like a coldness or, or an apathy I'm observing. I guess I'm just sharing here because we're a body. Right. But I see the desire to have this church plant, and for many other reasons, but at least that one of, of this church and where it where it is and what it is accomplishing. And you look at the number of new families that have, have come, and, and the families that have come and gone. Why have they gone? Um, but there are. There are souls being won to Christ in this church as well. Yeah. God is. And I. Yeah. God lays different yeah. things on all no. of our hearts. No, so you I, bring I, up I a good wanna, point, Rory. I, 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 I catch what you're saying. And the prayer is, is this, and this would be on the heart of every leader in this church. If we endeavor a church plant, it, it needs to be done in such a way that both bodies thrive. And that's not going to happen if people aren't pulling together. It's not going to happen if people aren't seeking Christ daily 
giving themselves wholly to him and asking of themselves, where do I fit? How can I see the church of God thrive and multiply? It cannot happen apart from that. And we need that to be the case, not just once, but multiple. I mean, it would be wonderful to see God continue to make multiplications, to see healthy churches being planted in regions where there are no healthy churches so that children are being brought up in an environment where the gospel is proclaimed, where the communities where they live have a place where the gospel is being proclaimed and where people are being, as Jesus commanded us, being taught to obey all that he commanded. We need that. This is his his plan. It's not my plan. It's his plan. It's his agenda. And we need to tether ourselves to his agenda. And I I think it would be short-sighted to say, well, we can only, to do one thing means we must then, the other must shrink and die away. I, I do not believe that is the case. thoughts. Thank you for open and frank discussion. That's important. It's good.